This is Julio Rodriguez, and this is the Lookout Landing Podcast. podcast where we are passing the time just like the rest of you. Uh, my name is Matthew Robertson, staff writer for Lookout Landing and host of this here podcast. And uh, today I'm joined by two people, Kate Prusser, normal um, host slash blog extraordinaire person, is sitting this one out. She's load managing, um, but we have my confidant, uh, fellow writer for the site, John Troopin. John, what's going on in Cooperstown? Give us a, a quarantine update from out east. It is pretty, pretty dang quiet. Has not really woken up back from the winter. I am glad uh, you threw me for a loop there because I did think I was going to have to do a Kate impersonation for a second uh, based <laughs> on the way you said that. So I, I feel much more at ease. My whole body tensed up from my, my falsetto. It's not great. Uh, so, yeah, I'm feeling better now. That's wonderful. I would never ask you to be anyone you aren't, John. We know your strengths and we're <laughs> going to play you. to those. You're so good, you know Matt. Ca- You're so good about that. I Yeah, I try to, you know, I try to be the point guard here. Distribute uh, touches where they need to go, you know, make everyone happy. But, like, Kate has her skills, you have your skills, and we, uh, we know how to work around both of those. But we are not here to talk about uh, Kate, who is who's on the bench. We have <laughs> a fill-in, uh, an exciting guest uh, today, a writer... For The Athletic is joining the podcast, someone who has seen the Mariners up close and personal for the past few years. It is Mariners beat writer Corey Brock. What's up, Corey? Uh, Everything's good here. I was going to ask John if he has fortified himself with a lot of Amagang beer uh, to pass the time away. (laughs) Uh, I certainly hope he has. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You... you, um... You, you kind of have three choices. You've got Umagang, you've got Saranac, and, uh, and then if you're, if, you're really, uh, if you're really looking for, for something else, you can go to Chuck Nuts. And, uh, but Umagang, fortunately, while they're closed, the, uh, the beer still is in stock. So we, we, you can go by, swing it up, and they'll bring it out to, uh, bring it out to your car. So not everything is, is, is lost. What a world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, what is uh what's life looking like in the Brock household? We know you have kids, so I imagine that's been quite the experience having them trapped inside with you all day. Yeah, the, trapped is a pretty good word, Matthew. No, um, <laughs> challenging is the one I think that's a little more PC, right? Uh, they, I have six-year-old twin boys. <laughs> And um, they're kind of bouncing off the walls a little bit. They have a little bit of schoolwork. They're in kindergarten. Well, I guess they were, right? I, I, I think we're edging <laughs> toward first grade whenever school starts again. So, yeah, you know, honestly, though, um, I will say selfishly, uh, the extra time with my family uh, during all of this is, um, it's been really nice. You know, I, there's no other way to sugarcoat it. I, I would sure I would be out, prefer to be out watching games. The Mariners would be in Minnesota today. That's one of my favorite cities. Um, but, you know, this is sort of what we're up against, and I think we sort of understand uh, there's something much bigger uh, happening right now. But, you know, at least um, I get a lot of chance to uh, spend time with my family. And I'll tell you guys this, 
I've never spent more time in my yard working uh, since we moved into our house in 2016. So uh, that's been a new, uh, new experience for me. Yeah, I bet. So how much of your day now is devoted to baseball? Like obviously you have dad duties, which now are also, I'm assuming, partly teacher duties and maybe chef duties and other various hats that you have to wear. But how much time can you carve out to sort of think and write about the Mariners right now? Yeah, honestly, probably not as much as I'd like. Uh, but, you know, you have to kind of budget your time, uh, manage the hours a little bit, squeeze in what you can. I find myself doing a lot of writing uh, at night um, and maybe in the early mornings before they get up and just making some calls. And certainly, you know, the way that we cover the beat is maybe a little bit different than some outlets in Seattle do. Um, so in, in a sense, you know, you know, a lot of the stories that we're writing are sort of similar to the ones we were writing before, kind of big picture, holistic view of things, maybe some uh, dipping into the past a little bit. You know, I'm, you know, born and bred mm -hmm. uh, Mariners fan from, from the get-go, really, uh, which means I'm pretty old. So uh, so I feel like I have a, a pretty <laughs> good tie to the, uh, the past of the organization, and um, it's been fun to do a lot of those stories. So... Uh, yeah, you just kind of you, you squeeze it in when you can and you, you make time and you have sometimes you have to get a little creative to do it. How how have you like you, you mentioned, uh, you know, obviously being a Mariners fan for for your your entire life. Um, and you recently had a great story about Mario Mendoza. Um, how many of these stories that you you guys, you know, been working on? are things where it's like, oh, this is in the back burner, but like when you're doing beat writing, obviously it's a different style of beat writing in some ways, but like how often, how much of this is like, oh, well, now I have time to actually go deep on this history thing versus, all right, I have to brainstorm, you know, some different story or angle, you know, how, how much are you digging into reserves versus whipping up, you know, new ideas as you go? Yeah, John, that's the biggest fear, right? Like, um, coming up mm -hmm. with ideas and feeling like you wake up in the morning and you're sort of flat-footed and you have no idea what you're going to be doing. But <laughs> I, I kind of keep a running list and um, have a Google Doc with my editor and we kind of bounce ideas off each other. And it's surprising how many things you come up with. And I will say in the uh, uh, in lieu of real baseball and things to talk about with this, with this current team, um, Every idea is pretty much a good idea at this point. You know, we are <laughs> we are stretching some ideas. Um, it's kind of a fun project that actually went live on um, on Monday. Um, Dennis Lynn, a good friend of mine who covers the Padres, we used to work together when I covered uh, the Padres for MLB.com, and he was with the Union Tribune. Uh, we uh, we did a simulation of the 2020 World Series, and we got out of the park. Um, OTP to help us run the simulation yes. and uh, the game one was just a hoot and we're still waiting to get the data to, to put together the rest of the games but like you know there you know there wasn't going to be time for that you know on April 20th you know we'd be talking mm -hmm. about the team and what's going on what's going on in player development um, on, in the farm system gearing up for the draft so um, it's it in some ways it's kind of allowed us to stretch our legs a little bit and maybe try some ideas and maybe some things we wouldn't have normally done before. Absolutely. 
Corey, have you uh, have you started participating in the nostalgia aspect of all this, and you know, tuning into Root Sports for their their replays or old radio broadcasts? How much of the uh, the past Mariner games that they're showing have you allowed yourself to watch? Yeah, you know, guys, I go back and forth on these, and I don't know how you feel about them. You know, I lived through, and actually, you know, I was in the kingdom in '95 as a younger reporter. You know, covering, helping cover that game for the News Tribune in Tacoma, so. A lot of these games they've been showing, I was I was there, and it's fun to um, to watch that again. I caught myself watching uh, what was it, Game Three of the 2000 um, AL. I guess that was B- DS with uh, Carlos Guillen's safety squeeze bunt. The, the um, bunt. I was yeah. fascinated by that. It was such a cool moment to be at the stadium at that time, um, and what a great way to you know, finish off a series. So. I, I kind of have, I won't say I have a love-hate relationship with these games. Um, I, I feel like at some point, um, like I feel, and this is going to sound awful. Maybe, maybe hopefully someone could bail me out here. But I felt like they were showing <laughs> at game five of the 95 uh, series a lot. You know, the Edgar double. And yes. I feel like we went through all this last year when he was um, going into the Hall of Fame. And then I felt like they ran it a few times. And then it just kept it sort of kept recirculating and you know, I'm glad that they moved on to some Mm -hmm. other games because, you know, for a team that certainly has lost more than they've won during their time as a franchise, there's been some really cool moments. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I I guess I have a little bit of a discerning eye and attitude when it comes to watching some of these games, but you know, sure enough, I'll tune, tune into it and I'll find myself hooked and it's like 45 minutes later and I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, you know, it, that was fun. That was fun to kind of relive that. I think that's something that our the, our community has definitely talked about, and I think Mariners fans have have talked about. So I I think you can be bailed out by by a a shared sense of that in a, in in a sense of of course people love you know the double and of course you know it's the iconic moment of Mariners fandom, um, but it's also because when you lean on you know, a certain section of the team's history. So consistently, um, you know, eventually people get a little bit, fr- not frustrated necessarily, but, but it's, it's hard when that's sort of the same thing that's going, been going back to, uh, when the team doesn't necessarily have that many other major moments that they're willing to, or that they can point to as these great successes. So it is, it is a tricky you, challenge. You know, I will say guys, um, um, I, there was kind of a funny moment the other day, I think, 710 was re-airing the radio broadcast of that game and there was some sort of technical glitch and they mm-hmm. weren't able to finish it which yes was, uh there, were, there was no edgar double and i think they tweeted it out and i thought like <laughs> yeah hey th- this is we've jumped the shark here this is this should be a moment that tells everybody <laughs> that we need to move on yeah give give that tape a rest for a little bit let it let it let it cool off for a moment and Try you know Amen. pull some pull some more two thousand tapes. Yeah, I think for me the old games are just sort of unfortunate reminders of a few things. Like obviously the big one is that it just reminds you that there's no live baseball right now. Like if you turn on Root Sports and see that they're showing another game from the nineties, you're like, oh yeah, this was supposed to be you know the time where they show an actual Mariners game that's happening in real life. But then there's also the part that you guys have kind of hinted at where it's like. 
just showing the 95 double over and over again or the Carlos Guillen game or whatever playoff game, it just reminds you that there's not that many of them. Like the, the successes for the Mariners are so few and far between that the fact that they're probably going to be able to show them all in a two-week span this offseason is also kind of sad in its own way. Like at a certain point, I don't want to be reminded that the Mariners haven't made the World Series and that all of these playoff runs are going to end in the league championship series. Yeah, you got to mix in a couple like 2012, you know, 2013, yeah. just like Tuesday games, just to, to yeah. you know, keep it keep it exciting. Or I'd like to reach back even further, and maybe maybe they don't want to do this because it won't necessarily resonate with, uh, you know, the, the I guess what they call their targeted demographic. But like, I'd like to go back to uh, two games I specifically remember. I believe in 1981, where Tom Pachoric hit back to back walk-off home runs to beat the Yankees, two sold-out crowds. Um, I was at one of those games, I think I was, I probably was 12, and it was bat night, um, when teams used to still have bat night. And guys, I'll tell you this, not to go on a rant here, but the bats they used to give away <laughs> back in the 70s and, yeah, early to mid-80s, they were legitimate clubs. Like, these things were like 35 <laughs> inches, like 36 ounces. Um, at some point, they probably realized this was a really bad idea. Let's get rid of It was kind of like ball night. You know, they, so, all it took was one night where somebody started hucking balls on the Kingdom turf, and then they decided, <laughs> yeah, we're not doing ball night ever again. So I feel like I've sort of lived through so many good and bad uh, promotions over the years that maybe it's time to bring them back. Yeah, they've really pivoted in the last couple of years to things you can wear rather than things you can use to as a weapon against other people, which is good. You know, a beard hat isn't going to hurt anyone. <laughs> yeah, the Kuma bear hat, not really a threat. Maybe a choking I hazard think, at most. I think, though, to kind of uh, tie a bow on the old, the old game thing, I've been, because there are nights, I mean, I think we're all pretty bored. Um, and for me, especially, I don't have kids. I am by myself. So I've been trying to find ways to entertain myself. And one of the things that I've been doing is looking up games that I don't remember. So like, obviously the playoff ones are the ones that everyone remembers that are kind of etched in our minds. But for me, I was, uh, I believe it was actually Shannon Dreyer who pointed out on Twitter that if you just type in like the names of two teams and a date of a game you want to see, it's most likely on YouTube. Um, so I've been doing that and just going through like the 2014 and 2016 specifically, going through those baseball reference pages and just finding games that I was like, oh, I don't remember that. I want to watch it. And then putting that on and killing three hours. And you don't have to like watch it like, you know, intently. Like it's still kind of background the way that a live game would be for me, but it's just nice to have like Dave Sims's voice in my apartment again and just watch, I mean, Cano and Cruz over again, or if it's a Felix start, like watching him do his thing. So I've been doing that, but I don't really want to do the like game 161 or, you know, Felix's perfect game because I already know exactly what's going to happen. So I kind of miss, like John said, like a Tuesday game is kind of, that's what I miss about baseball is sort of just the, the lull of it. So I've been trying to recreate that by just finding random ones on YouTube. And you know what? There's some random beauty to, well, just about any game if you think about it. But like maybe it's a game where Adrian Absolutely. Beltre hit two home runs, and you remember that game. Boy, that would be fun to watch again. I I would tune in to watch that. Um, or maybe you know Richie Sexton struck out four times. Um, probably a few of those <laughs> available. Um, might be at the same I time. Might be the same game. 
Exactly. What a bonus, right? But uh, no, it's. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of cool moments, and that's. Oh boy, that baseball reference, and that uh, the game log and all that, and you know the things that it could trigger, uh, the rabbit hole that that is, um, really, really dangerous, especially when you have kids and should be maybe paying a little bit more attention to them. But uh, <laughs> what a great resource. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this kind of begs the question then, Corey, uh, while we're on the topic, like, are there sort of random games that the average fan maybe wouldn't remember that really stand out to you from your time on the beat as like a a great experience that sort of faded away into history? Well, that's a good question. Um, You know, I I thought about, well, the the other day, and this is still kind of a bigger one, but... um, when opening day rolled around, I wrote something about the 1986 uh, season opener against the Angels in the Kingdom, and um, I think a lot of people have forgotten about that just because it was so long ago, but, you know, Jim Presley tying a game in the bottom of the ninth inning with a home run and then winning it with a walk-off grand slam, and me and my buddies were at that game, um, and so, you know, there's some moments like that, and I mentioned the, uh, Matthew, I mentioned the Pachoric uh, back-to-back games. I think if you go back yeah. um, a little deeper into the history of the team, and, you know, the team was really bad for a long time. <laughs> um, and I think uh, a lot of people didn't necessarily live through that or weren't old enough to remember it. Um, I, I wish I could tell you you missed a lot, but you really didn't. Um, uh, you know, but no, there's, it's just funny. But some things will pop into my head, and I'll be like, man, I, okay, I remember that. I'm going to go look for it. And then, you know, you know, two and a half hours later, maybe I'm lucky, I find it, maybe I don't. But, uh, um, yeah, nothing that really comes uh, off the top of my head, but probably good. I've just seen so much baseball, you know what I mean? And, like, maybe I don't think I've become desensitized to it, but um, it, it's, the total recall on it isn't always there anymore. I have dad brain. So, but, yeah, every <laughs> once in a while something will pop in my head. And I'll be like, yeah, oh, man, that was, a, that was a fun game. You know, that was really cool. I think I remember a game in the kingdom where Mike Blowers hit a grand slam off Tim Wakefield at the time where Wakefield was really good, right? And I think he had a year, maybe he was like 15-2 and two or something like that. Nobody could hit that knuckleball, but uh, Blowers just absolutely tattooed one. I remember Richie Zisk hitting some home runs off. Remember the old right field wall there, Walla Walla, they used to call it there. They had the... Uh, USS Mariner out there, right? And um, uh-huh. that, which was really cool. Let's bring that back. Absolutely, I think that's a. I think that's actually a very good way to go on it. Where like, I you know I obviously I've been a Mariners fan my whole life. Matthew's been a Mariners fan, but like, I know the name Tom Pachorek. I know you know I know Alvin Davis as the you know, the very sort of distinguished man who, you know, you always see at any sort of major events. But, like, those guys also had games and and interesting moments, and and those may not have been on particularly important teams, but, like, my, my most vivid memories of those sort of 80s Mariners teams are, like, the dribbling ground ball that was blown foul, uh, by Lenny Randall, like, which is great. That's a, you know, fabulous moment, but it's, it, you know, and like the, the image of Gaylord Perry, um, you know, r- lifting his hat of the, after the 300th win, like it's, I would love to see just like some more day to day stuff in, in, from those teams just to sort of fill out, you know, fill out the team's history. I feel like that's an opportunity here. Well, I feel, uh, today it might've been the anniversary 
I think it was on Twitter of Brian Holman's near no-hitter against the A's. You guys remember that where Ken Phelps, of all people, Ken Phelps, um, oh, yeah. hit a home run with two outs to uh, to end that, and he had to settle for a, uh, um, you know, allowing one run. But, like, I remember watching that game, you know, and the uh, yeah. Clemens game was on the other day on ESPN. I don't know if you guys caught that, uh, the game in yes. 1986. I remember racing home from baseball practice uh, with some friends to watch that. And Gorman Thomas, I was like a huge Gorman Thomas fan, right? And uh, he hit a home run to dead center field at Fenway Park off uh, Clemens. Uh, pr- probably one of the true uh, f- few interesting moments of that game for the Mariners, who were obviously very much uh, overpowered by Clemens. But, uh, yeah, it's just fun. Like, it, it's fun to uh, reminisce about games like that because it, it takes mm-hmm. you back to that time. There's very few other things that I find myself reminiscing about my youth. And, and I don't mean that in a sad way, but baseball seems to sort of trigger that a lot easier than something else. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also an opportunity to like compare your very consistent memory of what the game looks like right now versus even just, you know, 20 years ago, you know, 30 years ago. And just the, you know, the way that the, game the pacing of the game looks and you know sort of you know the average fastballs that you might see sometimes but also it's you know sort of how incredibly talented some of the guys are uh as well and and how that really stands out in a in a vivid way yeah and i was gonna say uh while you guys were talking i found the game you were talking about Corey. uh the mike blowers two home runs against tim wakefield it was august 18th 1995 blowers had (laughs) A grand slam off Wakefield and a three-run homer off Wakefield. So he had seven RBIs in that game. But the craziest part is the Mariners win 9-3, to three, so fairly high-scoring game. And according to baseball reference, the game took less than three hours. So you have a high-scoring game that also didn't <laughs> last all night, which is incredible. And you were also right That's about Wakefield. Cool. He was 14-2. Okay. What was his ERA going into that game? Can you tell? Uh, that is a good question. 208. I guess he got the. Yeah, yeah, he was dealing. Man, that's wow, <laughs> wow. That was his first year in Boston. Holy cow, that was wow. Right. And the Red Sox were real good. They were 63 and 41 going into that game. So it's so like in two minutes you're you, able to. You know find what's all funny about the nation? Yeah, and yeah. you know what's funny about Wakefield? Um, that I sort of I think. I don't know if Flowers told me this years later, or maybe I just heard that, you know, he, he had trouble pitching indoors because uh, with the knuckleball, um, you know, mm. there's no there's no atmospheric conditions to kind of help that thing out. And it doesn't like it doesn't like need a 20 mile an hour wind pushing it. But mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Just it's yeah. it's just kind of a stale environment in, in terms of temperature, and mm-hmm. uh, there's no wind blowing at all. So I think it, during his time. In the big leagues, at least by and large, I think he, he had some times where he really struggled pitching indoors. Interesting. Yeah, I guess I never really thought of that, but with the knuckleball, I'm sure there's, you know, the knuckleballer himself is probably very aware of all the things that affect it, whereas the hitters are just trying to see ball <laughs> hit ball, I would imagine. Okay, Corey, I have uh, some sort of, I guess, topical questions for you, given the circumstances of our recording um, I'm curious uh, where you were on the day that everything kind of shut down. Were you in 
Arizona with the team when spring training got canceled and then hours later they announced that the season is going to be um, postponed? Or how did you uh, specifically find out that everything had sort of stopped? Yeah, basically the way we set up spring training this year was I was going to take two trips to Arizona, uh, maybe go down for two weeks, uh, come home for a stretch, and then go back for you know the final um, two, three weeks. So I, was, I had already made a trip to Arizona. I was back home, and I was getting ready to fly um, back to Peoria. And sort of it was the night, I think, um, I mean, I, it wasn't the night that the, the NBA shut everything down was also the day that Tom Hanks announced that he had coronavirus. And I think that was kind of a tipping point, at least for me personally, where like, oh, okay, this is, uh, wow, this is pretty serious. So uh, I canceled my flight back to Phoenix the next morning, and uh, a day or so later is when they um, postponed baseball, and everybody else down, that was in Arizona kind of had to scramble to get home. So I'm really thankful I never got a chance to uh, go back down to Arizona. Otherwise, I just would have turned around and had to come back home. So uh, then once you hear that, what is the next move for you? Are you then immediately thinking, oh, we're not going to have a season? Or are you just making, you know, 50 million phone calls trying to figure out what happened? Because I feel like there was some uncertainty there, at least for a little bit, between, okay, spring training is stopped for now. But, I mean, a lot of people, myself included, probably didn't realize it was going to bleed this far into the regular season. So what was your first thought when you heard that, at least initially, spring training had been stopped? Well, I'll admit to being uh, very gullible, and I just thought that maybe um, with a short passage of time, normalcy would return, and uh, we would all head back to Arizona uh, for a short run-up to the regular season, and we'd get back underway with the season. Maybe they'd miss a month or so, um, but you know, uh, that was before I think we truly had a full understanding of uh, the power of the virus and certainly how quickly it was spreading um, and uh, just the severity of it. So, you know, it, it's as we, the further we move along here, um, you know, to be completely honest, the uh, less and less optimistic I am that we're actually going to have a baseball season. I would consider it to be a long shot at this point. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. I'm trying to be hopeful and optimistic, but uh, yeah, at least in those early days, guys, and maybe you were the same that you thought, yeah, okay, um, okay, we're going to shut down. Uh, uh, you know, everything will be clean and sanitized, and lo and behold, we'll be back doing this in no time. But I think we all found out pretty quickly and right about the same time that uh, this was no ordinary virus. Have you, uh, what can you share, I guess, that you've heard from the players or the coaches or people that you've talked to around the Mariners? Like, what are their thoughts about this? I know that the players are probably, you know, working out to some extent, trying to stay in shape, but have they given you any sort of insight into their feelings about whether there will be a season or if they have, you know, sort of secondary plans. Like, if there's anything that you've heard from players that you're able to share with us, uh, please let us know what you've heard. Because I think we are also wondering ourselves, like, what are the players doing? What are they thinking during all of this? I think um, a lot of confusion early on in terms of probably what they needed to be doing to keep themselves in shape. And I don't mean that there was any kind of uh, disarray from the organization. I think there was just kind of the great unknown that these guys really weren't sure how long they were going to be out. And then I think the Mariners articulated to all these guys pretty quickly that, hey, just stay in shape. Uh, when we go back to Arizona, whenever that is, 
it's going to be like starting from day one again. So uh, for, for pitchers in terms of workload, guys who were inching closer to getting ready for opening day and were stretched out, um, they weren't expecting them to go max effort in a in their backyard, you know what I mean, and, and throw 80 pitch bullpens. It was just more or less just kind of stay in shape. And I think that's kind of the prevailing thought from the people I've talked to now is um, they're as much in the dark about all this in terms of a potential return as, as any of us. They're no different than the rest of us, truly. And I think they're just trying to keep their bodies um, and their minds really um, kind of tuned into baseball because there's some normalcy with that. And um, I know a lot of guys who have families like me are really cherishing this time at home. And I completely, as a dad, I completely get that. But I think, you know, there's a little bit of uh, stir craziness, for lack of a better term. And um, guys would love to return to normalcy at some point. And, you know, I talk to, you know, a lot of player development people and they're the same way, you know, they have families. Most of those guys all have families because they're older and um, they're very thankful for their time they're having at home. And I think the Mariners have done a pretty good job of, of doing some of these training, um, short little uh, training Twitter videos. Maybe you guys have seen it with some of the instructors. Uh, Hugh Qualbaum yeah. uh, was on there. Uh, Tony Arnerich was on there. Uh, Jared Sandberg was on there. And so those are kind of fun kind of fun to watch um, and certainly benefits both not just the viewer um, but also the players themselves and the coaches themselves because uh, it, it sort of feels like they're doing what they've always done this time of year as opposed to standing down and um, just sort of waiting. So what do you think if the season uh, does return somewhat soon what do you think it's going to look like? I mean not in terms of like scheduling but just the baseball itself because I mean my thought is that hitters are going to be the ones at a little bit of a disadvantage because their timing is going to be so off. But I'm wondering what uh, what you think about the return. People have joked it's going to be you know the closest thing we've seen to like the 1950s, where players just in the off season were just you know working in a factory or whatever, and then they came back and had to play themselves into shape. Uh, what do you think the actual baseball will look like whenever we can see it again? Well, and that's I think that's going to really depend on how much of a period of time they're going to set aside for uh, whatever the variation of spring training is going to be. Is that going to be uh, two weeks? Is that going to be three weeks? Is that going to be four weeks? And I think we all sort of understand that spring training is basically a function for pitchers uh, to get ready. Ready. I think hitters can, uh, some of these guys, you know, they could just fall out of bed and just start raking. They really don't need that much time. So I think it could affect the pitchers actually more so uh, than the hitters um, because a lot of these guys are still able to take their cuts um, and maybe they're not facing uh, guys who are well they're definitely not facing guys who are you know, throwing big league fastballs curveballs sliders and all that but uh, hitting is such a timing thing so I think some of these guys are able to continue to do that in, in some way shape or form especially big leaguers who maybe have an opportunity to um, maybe they have their own hitting facilities where they live because they can afford it um, so I, I'm really curious, but I'm with, I'm like you, Matthew, I, I don't, I don't know what it's going to look like. And I'm really curious to see, um, what it does. And, you know, I, I think I'm really curious to see what this does for the Mariners. And I, I don't think we're, you know, talking enough about what this, you know, I think a lot of people realize the 2020 season is kind of a, uh, it's an evaluation period for all these young guys. It's a chance for some of these prospects to, 
get another year under their belt and mature and develop. Um, you know, I seem to think that a truncated season and or a no season at all is really going to hamper the rebuilding efforts. You know, it's going to push you back an entire year, um, which you sort of understand. But also, um, you know, I think like, like Julio Rodriguez needs like 500 at-bats. You know, uh, Jared mm-hmm. Kelnick needs 500 at-bats. And, um, you know, it's what it's going to do is, you know, I really thought if we played a full season this year, right, if we go back to January, I've been telling everybody forever that we're really going to know where this team is on the final day of the regular season. We're going to know if this rebuild is really going to happen or not and sort of what their next steps should be uh, based on this season because we're going to have a full understanding of who J.P. Crawford is, who Shed Long is, who Justice Sheffield is, who Jake Fraley is. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Um, I th- we were going to have our answers because we were going to have a big enough sample size to determine whether these guys are truly going to be guys for the rebuild. And now if you take away baseball for the entire season, we're not going to have any of those answers. Yeah, that particular point I think is is a really fascinating one of, you know, the Mariners, it, you know, this year didn't necessarily matter in, in the same way that it might matter for the Reds or for the Dodgers where, you know, this year was a chance to make the playoffs, you know, and, and have, uh, you know, a short-term contract, uh, you know, of, of, with high talented players, but the entire situation that they have is predicated on needing to see as much of the guys they have as possible. Um, I'm, I'm actually, I'm pretty curious what you, what you might think, Corey, about what they could do. Um, there's been, you know, obviously a lot of talk about, the rosters will have to be bigger in in some way, shape, or form uh, if baseball does actually come back. Um, do you think that you know? It, it, do you think it would make sense for the team to bring up some of those guys like Kelnick, like Logan Gilbert, um, to a you know lesser extent in terms of their core? Obviously, you know LJ Newsome. Um, you know, some of those players who are still in the minors, but were in spring, you know, were in big league camp with the team and, and would at least help fill out that roster. Like, do you think that that could be a byproduct of, of this situation being so strange? I will say this, John, I think, um, what you are describing, uh, would be much more applicable, uh, for pitchers more so than position players. That's fair. That's very fair. Again, I, I think... Yeah, because if we're talking about a minor league season running concurrently to the big league season, which I assume obviously would happen if we're back up and running, that, you know, Kelnick and Rodriguez, all these guys, um, uh, they need to be playing every day and getting consistent at-bats and all that. But I will say, and, you know, one of the things I'm, when I look at this franchise and I look at how many talented young pitchers they have um, Mm -hmm. on the 40-man roster or guys that even just on the bubble – of making it it's very exciting and i think you know in talking with scott service that was you know before all this happened that was his biggest takeaway of spring training think about that his biggest (laughs) takeaway of spring training was the quality of young pitching that he saw uh during that time month or so in arizona and i'm talking about sam delaplane joey gerber Mm -hmm. uh, penn murphy um even guys like sheffield who looked uh, really good um, especially in that last outing um, yeah, it's there's a lot of really interesting guys. Gerson Batista, 
yeah. look really, really good. He oh, looks yeah. like he's got his stuff figured out. Like a completely um, in a different small sample size. And yeah, he yeah, he's a totally different guy now, right? Um, he was throwing strikes. Um, <laughs> so I think that's where we would see with an expanded roster. Um, that's where we would see um, a lot of the young guys is is probably on the pitching side because one you got to make sure you have coverage there anyway for the innings especially if you're building uh, stamina with your starters and all that but um, you know I, I think it op opens up an opportunity obviously for guys like uh, you know Tim Lopes and Sam Haggerty mm -hmm. guys like that to to join the roster I'm a big Lopes fan I think he's I think he's good I think he represents the best uh, hitting uh, hitting option of all those. Uh, sort of utility guys. Yep. I think we could all agree the Mariners have like 46 of those, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've like, I, I live in Cooperstown, and so I actually saw Sam Haggerty in, uh, in Binghamton uh, when he was still with the Mets organization. And I thought, oh, this is an interesting guy. And then when the Mariners claimed him, I thought, well, sure, they do also have like six of these. They, you know, it, it was, it was right. baffling, but... You know, good yeah. good to have depth. Totally. Oh, uh, Corey, I know that you were uh, sort of in and out of Arizona. You mentioned that your your second trip down there is the one that ended up getting sort of nipped in the bud. But uh, what, I guess, were your expectations when you were watching the team up close? I mean, you mentioned a couple guys that stood out. But, you know, as you're there and you're approaching it from an objective standpoint, like I think we all were in agreement that the Mariners were going to be pretty bad you know the the real progress was going to come from player development not wins and losses but I'm curious what uh what the vibe was down there and I guess what you thought the 2020 Mariners were going to look like on the field yeah and you know setting aside the young guys which I felt like uh I just talked about probably way too much but it, it's it's kind of exciting I think you know for me it was watching Taiwan Walker it was watching Yusei Kikuchi, especially early on in those bullpen sessions where, again, he is a guy that's streamlined that delivery. Um, the ball coming out of his hand looks a lot better, I think. You know, I thought I've maintained for a while that, you know, I think he's going to be a lot better than he was last year. He had a lot of things thrown at him. Um, you know, it was kind of guys like that, like Jake Fraley. I was really curious to see what he, uh, what he did in the spring and, uh, what his approach and at bats look like. So it was kind of individual guys. Evan White, who uh, I you know I'm just really convinced he's gonna be really good guys. Um, like you know I don't know exactly what that looks like if that's 270, um, 20 and 80 eventually. I think the power is coming. Um, guys, you know things like that. Kyle Lewis. So um, it was kind of looking at individual guys and just sort of seeing where they were in terms of when we last saw them. A year ago when the season ended and kind of where are they now and where are the improvements been made and um, just how that was all going to sort of fit with the puzzle of what they were doing and you're right uh, I think we all realize where the Mariners are going to be competitively and I will give the organization credit they've been completely transparent about this so you know they're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes here um, I, I think since day one they've been pretty clear about this rebuild and um, the time it was going to take to to do this so um, yeah, for me, those are some of the guys that I was really honing in on. I just was, I thought it was very neat because uh, obviously Matthew and I spend a, a, a decent chunk of time talking to one another. Um, and so he has 
regaled me with uh, sort of his favorite players of of his childhood and um, sort of the the players that meant that were the Mariners in in his uh, you know formative experiences. Uh, and I read the the article that you wrote. Uh, Corey, on your favorite player, and I know you listed off a few. You actually, in, during this podcast, have have mentioned a few guys who could could fill that role. But um, I was curious to hear both of you just kind of go into uh, a little bit of what made Mike Cameron uh, fit the bill for for your favorite player. And Corey, you know, I don't I don't need to make you give the whole article away, but uh, I, I thought it was a very fun fun case. And Matthew. I know has talked about it a bit on the podcast, but I'd, I'd love to hear what, what sort of made Mike Cameron uh, sort of your favorite as well. Yeah, you know, I think it's a guy, Mike is a guy who, and this is going to sound a little strange or maybe goofy, and I mentioned it in the article, I, I don't think we quite appreciate him and what he did in his big league careers. Maybe we should have. Um, I, I think we all recognize that he was, he was a good player, played for a long time uh, for several teams, um, really came to this franchise in an untenable position, right? Um, when uh, Ken Griffey mm-hmm. Jr. basically forced a trade, the Mariners really had no, they had no other options. And so he's, he kind of highlights this package coming over from the Reds, and he's still trying to find himself as a player. And, you know, I never got the sense in watching him and talking to him uh, or being around him that he felt like he had these immense shoes to fill. Uh, because that, that's truly an impossible position replacing a franchise legend. Um, and he was really good for the Mariners. I mean, we talked about the four-home run mm-hmm. game uh, in Chicago, what he did defensively before we thought defense was mm-hmm. cool, right? And before we could measure uh, measure how good a, a player was defensively, um, he did a lot of things to sort of neutralize uh, guys from taking extra bases and you know what he was a great teammate and um, yeah, that's something you sort of glean from talking to a lot of players um, and just you know I think Dan Wilson sort of called him, him the glue of what they were doing and um, everywhere Mike Cameron went if you look at his track record he was a winner like the teams that he played on they won um, and certainly there's a lot of factors that feed into that but he was a very important and I think underappreciated piece of a franchise really at its zenith uh, at that time when he came to Seattle and certainly they failed to uh, live up to that ever since he's, he's mm-hmm. left but um, just a fun player to watch and he loved he, like this guy he, like he really loved it and you know we talk about the cami smile um, teammates loved him I think fans really liked him um, and I just think that uh, for me I, I think he was just the epitome of like a guy that's really easy to root for and a guy that's really easy to fall in love watching play um, because he did it the right way um, you know and it was just uh, just kind of a joy to enjoy him kind of watch him and also cover him and be on that end so um, he's still a guy when I see him around we just kind of shoot the you know what and, and talk and he, he's great and like the game's still in his blood and obviously he's still helping the Mariners out and working with outfielders he did a lot of good things with Malik Smith last year um, when Malik went down to the minors so yeah I'm a big Cammy fan yeah and I think you know for me I was a kid when he was with the Mariners so uh, a lot of my reasons for kind of falling in love with him are you know the reasons that kids fall in love with anything like he seemed 
the coolest, like the way that he played and like the way that it was little things like just the way that he wore his hat, you know, slightly to the side. And he was still wearing earrings at a time when the players could wear earrings on the field. And I thought 44 was a cool number, just like the double digit thing, like everything that he did seemed very cool. And then, you know, from that era, I think the iconic defensive play everyone remembers is Ichiro's throw to third. And the one that gets kind of forgotten for whatever reason is Mike Cameron robbing Derek Jeter. And that's like one of my earliest Mariner memories, period, is him. And it's like a picture-perfect home run robbery. Like, Mm -hmm. there's not a single wasted step. He gets to the wall at the perfect time. Like, his leap is right as the ball's coming down. And it's just everything about that when I first saw it, like, showed me what a center fielder was supposed to look like. And I just thought that he was everything, you know? And also, like, you know, there's the element for people my age, John's age, you know, people, children of the mid-90s, I guess, is we don't really have concrete Griffey memories. So, like, Mike Cameron comes up, and we, that's just what we know. Like, we don't have the the comparison of, oh, well, he's not Griffey. It's just, no, but he is Mike Cameron, and he's pretty damn cool. So that's why I liked him. And, you know, when I read your article, Corey, I think I was kind of just sitting there nodding along because he was underappreciated. He was very good and wasn't really given his proper due, I think. Yeah, you know what's funny is that catch that you described that happened like within his first week on mm-hmm. the team, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, you talk about a way to endear, endear yourself to a to a new fan base. That certainly helps. I believe I, I the from seeing the video uh, numerous times, as I recall, Dave Niehaus, uh the line is something like, "I I hate to call it, it was Griffey esque, maybe Cameron esque now, or so, something to that effect," which was just like. How, like could not have been a more perfect as as you guys said like could not have been a more perfect like you're coming to f- do an impossible job and fill the shoes of a legend as you said Corey and you know manage to do it you know really really with with as much grace as could be could have been mustered okay well Corey we won't keep you for much longer but we did get a couple questions from our Twitter followers so I want to run these past you and then we'll get you out of here um, the first one comes from our friend uh, Lookout Landing staff writer Eric Sanford uh, he said question for Corey I would love to hear any reflections on your trip to the Dominican Republic last year as well as any fun stuff you want to share from your check-ins with the team's top prospects last season or even the shortened 2020 spring training so I guess first uh, what can you tell us about your trip to the Dominican Republic and for the listeners maybe who don't know about the background of your trip uh, what were you what was kind of the purpose of the trip what were you doing down there what were you writing about and all of that yeah, I just wanted to see sort of how the operation worked down there. Um, and I had a lot of conversations with Andy McKay about uh, going down there. And he said, hey, you should come down and check it out. And so I flew to Florida and then hopped a, uh, hopped a flight from Orlando to uh, Santo Domingo. And I was down there for about three or four days and visited the academy and a beautiful academy uh, out in Boca Chica. And um they, it's it's just really impressive the setup they have, and I don't just mean uh, the fields and just you know how beautiful the buildings are and all that, but yeah, sort of the the curriculum they have set up and how they're putting these young guys through the paces of um, you know not just learning a new language, but uh, one day I sat in on a classroom where they were learning how to set up a Gmail account, um, just kind of rudimentary things that we all kind of take for granted that. These guys are kind of learning firsthand, and 
you know, learning how to balance it. Well, I should say balance a checkbook. I'm really dating myself. I don't think anybody has a checkbook <laughs> the, the anymore. Um, actually, we do. <laughs> but it was uh, it was fun, and you know, I, I got to ride around uh, sort of parts of the island. There, we drove over to the Royals uh, facility on some back roads, and <clears throat> you know, you you do realize quickly. It's, it seems obvious, but you it's you know third world conditions. You know, it, it's rough over there in some parts, but um, these kids are just so excited to um, be playing and I think really truly appreciate the opportunity they have and uh, uh, you know the coffee there was amazing I should say, I don't know if you guys are coffee guys, but man, Absolutely. I brought some back and it was going fast, I don't know how to get it now, but uh, it, no it was just cool and I got to sit in on one of my favorite ones uh, was, um, you know I've gotten to know Max Wiener a lot. Um, and um, he invited me to kind of sit in on a conversation they were having with Yuri Tatiste, a young pitcher yeah. uh, from the Dominican. And they were, uh, and you know, Max kind of had this all set up. He was talking about to Yuri about things he needed to work on. And at the very end, uh, he told Yuri that, uh, by the way, you're going to be working on this in Arizona next week. And uh, Yuri's eyes just kind of lit up. This is a kid who had a real rough upbringing, as a lot of these guys do. You know, it's, it's impoverished backgrounds, and maybe the um, you know some family members who've gotten into trouble or have, uh, are deceased. And um, so it was it was just really kind of cool to be a part of that moment, to kind of be a fly on the wall of something like that. And then you know, whenever I see Yuri, um, when I went down to gas camp uh, in Arizona, I saw him, and I saw him in spring training, and. He always smiling and he wants to shake my hand and you know like he doesn't know much english at all which is fine you know but he like uh, i had heard that you know he he'd really hit some high numbers in terms of velocity and i was trying to convey that to him and i was just i just wrote down the number and pointed at it and he, he started smiling he's like yeah he slapped me on the back and um it's it's kind of cool forming a, a little bit of a connection with some of these young guys when you see them and um you know, settings that, um, like gas camp, more intimate settings, I guess. And um, so I think some of my favorite conversations I've had in the last year or so are with young pitchers. For- uh, cool. What about um, the second part of that question with uh, check-ins with the team's top prospects from, you know, whether that was in the DR or from spring training? Uh, what can you tell us about the ones that you've yeah. interacted with? And I think obviously the one that Eric is hinting at and the one that we're all kind of thinking about is Julio Rodriguez. <laughs> He is a he is a dynamic soul. I tell you what, you know, I got to meet him truly for the first time. Um, not let's see, I guess that would have been the winter of eighteen when I went down to um, uh, you know their uh, prospect development camp, and I got to meet him. And just such an open, engaging personality. He was wonderful to talk to. He insisted on speaking English the entire time. And then I saw him a year later. Um, I never got a chance to catch up with him during the minor league season last year. I went to um, I went to Arkansas twice. I went to Modesto, but he wasn't there yet. Um, I was going to go to West Virginia, but remember he hurt his hand yeah. uh, pretty early in the season there. So, but I saw him just this past fall in, in the uh, Arizona Fall League. And my goodness, he looked like he was three inches taller, about twenty five pounds heavier, and his hand was like the size of a tire it was uh like like he had just like developed rapidly and like his english was 
ex extremely better than it was before, which was really good. I mean, um, he's really taken some painstaking steps to learn the language, which, which I think tells you a lot about uh, him as a person. So uh, it was fun to kind of go to some of these minor league outposts. Um, like I said, I went to Arkansas twice. Uh, sat down and talked with Logan Gilbert Modesto. It was uh, about 300 degrees that day. <laughs> um, it was just brutally hot. Um, and I saw, you know, I saw the Everett guys when they played in Hillsboro last year. Um, at George Kirby and all those guys, and catching up with Everett's young manager Lewis Boyd. That was a lot of fun. So I, I you know, I really get a kick out of that as much as I do, you know, traveling to these big league ballparks. And you know, I think we could all agree that. Um, you know, there's a lot of eyes on the big league team, as it should be, but a lot of interesting pieces in the minor leagues, and I thought that was important last year, uh, certainly in a year that was going to be a, a struggle for the big league team, and we all recognize that, um, that, you know, we I need to get to the farm, I need to talk to these young guys, and sort of introduced, uh, introduce uh, fans and readers to some of these guys, and kind of let them know what makes them tick, so... That was a lot of fun. I, I'm glad I got that experience a year ago. Yeah, and I think, you know, right now with the Mariners being in the position that they're in, uh, the only real hope comes from looking towards the future, which I guess is true of every team, you know, but the Mariners especially with, you know, sort of the the incubation period going on right now. The hope is that, you know, in two years they're no longer incubating and they're they're ready to go. So I think being able to see it from the – from the beginning stages, like you mentioned, some of these guys, you know, are still in the Dominican Republic. They haven't even come stateside yet. And being able to see them, you know, start there and hopefully one day become pieces of the big league team. Like that's, that's what it's all about. So I'm very, very jealous of that and excited to see, you know, like Yuri Tatis is someone who I don't know anything about, but now that you've brought him up, I'm going to, I'm going to try to keep an eye on him and hope that he can be part of the future. Uh, another future question that we got comes from James Dare on Twitter. Thank you, James. Uh, they said, which future potential free agents do you have your eye on that would tie in with our window and predictable positions of need? I don't know if you've looked at that or thought about it, Corey, sort of the free agent classes of two or three years from now. Of course, that's all kind of thrown into whack by this weird situation. But if you have looked towards the future, if you've talked to anyone within the organization, uh, what are your thoughts on possible free agents the Mariners could add when they're looking to, to really compete? Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think, you know, with a full season, we were going to get an understanding of what direction they needed to go in terms of adding free agents. You know what I mean? Like, okay, so the, Evan White, Jake Fraley, Justice Sheffield, these are all real guys. We need to go out and augment the roster uh, to sort of hasten this rebuild. And they've always said they were going to spend money. So, um, you know what's funny, uh, Matthew, for the purpose of that World Series simulation, uh, Dennis Lynn and I each added a free agent this winter and next winter, and I picked uh, uh, Trevor Bauer. Um, it, certainly, he's going to cost them a pretty penny. I think he could be really good to um, sort of stabilize that rotation. And, uh, you know, yes, I do realize the Mariners have a lot of pitchers and pitching prospects, but uh, I think he would allow guys to maybe slide in the spots in the rotation uh, where they probably should slide. Plus, it would keep Trevor close to his buddies down at driveline so uh there's that natural uh, natural connection again this is all conjecture right and i think what what's going to happen is if we get a shortened season or if there's no season at all uh you know i think everything goes out the window all bets are off at that point right like um 
how do they approach this winter? Um, let's say, let's say worst case scenario, right? In a month, they they decide, okay, we're not playing this season. So now we could truly work ahead and look ahead to 2021. But what do the Mariners do in the off season? Like, how do you approach free agency? How do you decide? what you're going to do when you still don't know what you have internally. So mm-hmm. uh, for me, that's a, uh, that's a big question, but um, I'll, I'll put in my two cents, which is as a, as a dad, that's all I have to my name at this point <laughs> uh, and contribute to the Trevor Bauer fund at this at right now. Certainly a name that we've kicked around. I mean, I think a lot of people have done the, that exact scenario that James laid out in his question of looking towards future free agent classes and thinking, oh, that could, you know, that'd be a nice piece. Or, you know, if there's personal things like Bauer and Driveline, then it's like, oh, well, now we have something. Because I think it's going to be hard to convince a lot of people, especially if their home base or whatever you want to call it is on the East Coast. It's going to be hard to convince them to come all the way to Seattle. And Bauer is a California guy who has the driveline connection. I think that gives him, you know, a step or two ahead of the competition in terms of coming to Seattle willingly. (laughs) All right, then my last question, or I guess Twitter's last question comes from Glitterachi. Thank you so much, Glitterachi. Wonderful Twitter handle as well. And this is kind of a fun one. I wanted to end on this (laughs) one. Um, do you think people will still get worked up about the Astros when we finally play them again, or will too much time and other stress have passed? So essentially, when we see the Astros for the first time after all of this, is the vigor still going to be there, or do you think people are going to chill out a little bit? Oh, I hadn't thought of that until I saw that Twitter question, Matthew. <laughs> like, That's an interesting one, right? I mean, the passage of time and certainly what we've gone through you know, as a country and as a world, like, like, are people really going to be banging on trash cans at the stadium at this point in August? I, I don't know. Should they be? Um, I don't know. I, I can't say what's right one way or the other. I have a feeling that, um, uh, people in baseball, baseball fans in general have a pretty long memory. So I think they're going to get it stuck to them. Uh, no matter when baseball starts up, maybe not to the extent that they would have if the season started on time, but uh, I don't think people are going to let them off the hook that easily. Yeah, maybe they maybe there's like a standing ovation. You know, everyone's really excited, like game one, and then after that, you know, it's like, oh, we're you know, it's okay, baseball's back, that's what matters. But but you know, after that, no no quarter given. Yeah, wouldn't that be funny? I mean, like their first game back, I don't know if it's going to be. Home certainly that would change the vibe, right? But let's say they they open on the road, and people are just so fired up for baseball to return. Um, there's normalcy in our world again, and then uh, people are excited and just so giddy. And then all of a sudden, you're just gonna you're just gonna stick it to the Astros and uh, fall back into the behavior you would have had in April, um, looking again looking for trash cans <laughs> to bang on or booing. I don't know what they're going to face, but uh, it's going to be pretty interesting. Well, and the other part of it is now the Astros have nothing but time to sort of work on their their PR plan, right? Like, if I was the Astros, I would be doing everything in my power to, you know, build back the image and donate money to this or donate, you know, time to this. Like, do whatever you can to make people forget that three months ago you were the most hated team in sports. Like, this is the perfect opportunity for them to sort of go on their apology tour and, you know, have – you know, Alex Bregman and Altuve film little Twitter videos, you know, urging people to come together rather than <laughs> come apart at the seams. 
So we'll see what happens, but yeah, well, you you yeah, you're suggesting though, Matthew, that the Astros are, <laughs> and I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. But I have noticed a lot of things. I follow some of the Astros writers, and uh, um, especially our own Astros writer, and uh, they, I know they've been doing a lot of charitable yeah. work in Houston and things of that nature, which is great. I mean, that needs to be happening anyway. So maybe that's by design. I don't know, but. Uh, uh, let's let's hope we get an opportunity. How about this? How about we we all hope that we get an opportunity to boo the Astros yeah. sooner rather than we later. could get maybe the you know teams have been doing you know people have been talking about like you can buy a cardboard cutout of yourself and like pay to like put it in the stadium and the teams will maintain it. You could just have people be able to pay for cardboard cutouts or actual trash cans and just kind of set those at every uh, seat throughout the park. <laughs> That may, you know, that might be a way teams could teams could get folks engaged. Well, they're going to have to make up exactly. that uh, cash exactly. deficit somewhere. So, like, don't uh, don't turn your, turn your nose up <laughs> at any ideas at this point. That is very true. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I wish that the circumstances were different, obviously, but you know, while we're all stuck at home, figured it was a good time to to get you on the phone and talk about baseball or whatever baseball is now. So uh, thank you. And this is the portion of the show where you get to shamelessly self-promote. So direct people towards whatever you want to direct them to. Uh, the floor is yours to talk about yourself. Okay. Well, support local businesses first and foremost, including your local brewery. Um, and <laughs> uh, continue to support uh, journalism, uh, no matter what way, shape or form that is. Uh, we're doing some fun stuff over at The Athletic, even in lieu of no sports. Uh, I think we have a 90-day free trial mm -hmm. offer. Uh, our Vetter Cup uh, simulating the 2022 World Series is live. Our fan survey is going live this week. And uh, you can read the story I worked on for eight months on uh, Mario Mendoza, which is probably going to be one of my favorite stories of all time. Yeah. So, And, you know, that in addition to a lot of the other things we cover, Seahawks, um, the non-existent uh, NHL team, Huskies, uh, Sounders, all that. We got it all covered, and, uh, you know, like everybody else, we're trying to make this work, so we appreciate everybody's interest and support. That is wonderful. Well, thank you. Uh, Corey's on Twitter at Corey Brock MLB. John, thank you as always for uh, being here as well. You can follow John on Twitter at John Troopin. I am at MRoberson22. Uh, read The Athletic, read Lookout Landing, support everyone that you can support at a time like this, and uh, come back next week for another brand new episode of the Lookout Landing podcast. And until that happens, bye!